Scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 14 through 29. That's Mark 9, 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do nothing, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it uh, might sound strange to our modern ears, but Christians throughout history have often found it helpful, even necessary, to distill what they believed about Christianity uh, into these sort of compact, theologically loaded statements of what they believed that they called creeds. We're actually still doing this. Uh, My guess is somewhere along the way, you've had someone who handed you what we call tracts to try to explain some aspect of Christianity to you. Uh, You may have found these more or less helpful. Uh, I often found in my growing up that they were less than helpful simply because they they lacked the depth that you needed to sort of carry true Christian confession. But in contrast, the Apostles' Creed, though, is a very ancient track dating all the way back to like the 2nd century A.D., and it was sort of an attempt to sort of summarize these fundamental truths of Christian believing. And so the Apostles' Creed helps us to understand, in many ways, just what it means to be a Christian. And the way in which it does that is by simply giving us more words to talk about it, Uh, which is a truism, right? The more words that you have to talk about something, the better that you know it. Uh, I was uh, reminded and thought a little bit about uh, my friend uh, Jeff McManus. If you don't know Jeff here in town, Jeff is the head groundskeeper at Ole Miss, a nationally recognized uh, expert in what he's done for how beautiful our campus looks. Well, when you and I walk around campus, we say things like, ah, 
tree or pretty <laughs> or bush, right? Um, uh, but Jeff, though, is different. He walks around campus and says things like magnolia uh, or uh, crepe myrtle uh, or hydrangea. Why? Because he understands it better. There's a level of sophistication that allows him to understand it better. And I'm imagining, if you ever talk to Jeff about his work, to enjoy it more as well. He sees nuances of appreciation that are masked to us because we lack the vocabulary. Well, if the trend observers are right, this upcoming generation is ceasing to be more, more and more interested in Christianity. The researchers continue to report the rise of what we might call the nuns, these are people who, when they're interviewed, to ask them what religion they are, they mark the box stating none. And so what we find is, is people every passing year are seeing belief in general as something that's tertiary. It's to the side. It's not something that concerns me at all. But what Brian and I want to do this summer, and actually next summer as well, is to submit that that actually is just not true. Everyone has a set of principles that they live by, that is sort of a guide for what is and is not appropriate in any given situation. But of course, you can imagine that if Christians are sort of on their heels by the rise of unbelief going on around them, then they would be best served to get really clear on exactly what it is that they believe. What is, therefore, the content of our faith? That is how the Apostles' Creed serves us. But I wanted to introduce the topic this morning by sort of getting clear on what we mean when we talk about believing in the first place. I have to admit, this has become a little bit of a pet topic of mine over the years. You've heard me refer to it at least a couple times in the past. Uh, but I want to drill, drill deep on this question of what do we mean when we begin the creed by saying, I believe? What's that activity look like? So three headings this morning. We want to understand the centrality of believing, the dynamics of believing, and then finally, briefly, the act of believing. Notice the centrality of believing, first of all. The first thing is to note is that Christianity is just a believing religion. Look at verse 23. Jesus says to the father of this deaf-mute boy, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, look, I don't care who you are. That is an over-the-top statement. I've, I've said before, you can hardly throw a rock into the New Testament without finding some kind of passage that says that you're supposed to believe something. You're supposed to put your faith in something. And therefore, what we find then is in Christianity, belief is more central to our understanding of what it means to embrace it than really any other world religion, I would argue. Most religions place most of their emphasis on what theologians would call orthopraxy. Break that word down, right? Ortho comes from the Greek word meaning straight. You go to the orthodontist to what? Straighten your teeth. Praxy comes from the word that you and I know as practice. So what, in other words, most religions are saying, in order to be a part of that particular religion, you have to get straight about your practice. Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Eastern religions, all of these religions are preoccupied by the way you practice their religion. Want to get close to God? Here's what you do. But Christianity is different, is it not? 
Christianity is not primarily a, a religion that we practice because we don't so much focus on orthopraxy as we do orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, of course, means straight worship or straight glory giving, we might say. In other words, Christians will always be those who focus on what it is that you are worshiping, what it is that you are taking glory in. You know, if we had more time, we could get into this whole theology, which is quite interesting, of what it is that makes you as a human tick. Because humans, I believe, are created, the Bible says, to be glory givers by nature. We're born looking to find meaning, to assign our life to it, to draw life from it. And so for that reason, Christianity is not fundamentally a religion that you practice, you hear people talking about that. You know, I, I just want freedom in my world to be able to practice my religion without oppression. But that's not really Jesus' primary interest, interest. Because Jesus is rooting what you do, how you act, much more in who you are. And who you are is defined and understood by what it is that you are taking glory in at any given time. That's Christianity. Christianity is not, therefore, I wish we had more time on this one too. Christianity, therefore, is not a religion of superficiality. It's not a religion that sits comfortably as an appendage to your life, as a spoke on the wheel of your life, as it were. No, Christianity goes to the core. It goes to the center of the motivations. And whatever interest you have in this faith, you're going to find that it's going to have something to do with your believing over and against all other religions. So that's the centrality idea. But secondly, I want to look this morning at the dynamics of believing. And I want to spend the most time on this particular topic. Because that's kind of where the problem started, isn't it? I mean, what exactly do we mean when we say that I believe something? And so what I found is the Bible actually really does teach that there are many ways to falsely believe. Or ways in which we are mistaken about the true nature of belief. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is simply this idea that believing is a mental state where you are completely purged of any kind of doubt. Uh, you think of little, uh, little Natalie Wood in the back seat of the car in Miracle on 34th Street, trying her best to hang on to her belief in Santa Claus. And she's saying, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. Is that what it is? Is that what belief is? That the moment that you begin to question or ask a question about what these things mean around you, or can I really embrace this, that suddenly that's a lack of belief? I think actually, not only is that not the Bible's definition of believing, that's also a positively dangerous posture. This is one of the reasons why our young people, when they go off to college, are often swept away by a tide of skepticism when they encounter it at school. Why? Because teachers, good teachers anyway, are trying to get you to question your beliefs. Not necessarily to break you down, but to let you understand why you believe them so they can strengthen them. But in my experience, I've found a lot of Christians, even those who come from highly religious backgrounds, who are completely intimidated because they thought to entertain the question was outside of the pale. In other words, if I begin even to approach doubt, then I'm not believing. And in that insecurity, they walk away from the questions. That's not helpful. But the truth is, Christianity in that particular form, this kind of believing, can lead you to sort of look at Christianity like a, 
like a, a power of positive thinking writ large or something. And unfortunately, Christians have taken this statement oftentimes to mean just that. As if Jesus is saying, look, purge yourself of doubts, and then you'll just, you'll just make stuff happen by the sheer force of positive energy being directed towards whatever you want. Is that what belief is? But of course, I think that's a superficial reading of what Jesus is doing here. The second sort of way in which we need to reject this kind of uh, false believing is others who would say that, well, believing is nothing more than just acknowledging something to be true. That is, you know, we sort of, someone looks and says, okay, sure, I, I believe in Jesus, by which they are willing to agree to some degree that there was, I don't know, a guy uh, named Jesus who lived some 2,000 years ago and um, he did some stuff or something. Sure, I believe in Jesus. But of course, the problem with that is the Apostle James says that if that's as far as your understanding of belief goes, you've merely risen to the level of a demon. <laughs> James says even the demons believe and they tremble. And again, that doesn't really come, that doesn't, that's not able to carry the weight of what Jesus is saying when he says, all things are possible for him who believes. Doesn't even come close. Thirdly, and this one's the most famously difficult to describe mistake, and that's what I would describe the, the intellectual leap into the dark, right? Still persists. Uh, you, you know, your TikTok and YouTube content creators will tell you that science in our day, they deal with the facts. You religious people, you deal with faith. I literally was encountering this just this weekend, where oftentimes Christians, when pressed, with what they are presented as scientific fact, will often be like, uh, uh, I don't really know how to work that out, but, you know, but, but that's why we have to have faith. That's why you just kind of got to take the intellectual leap into the dark, which is really hard to define exactly what they're talking about. But again, I'm, I'm simply, and that's a complicated topic, right? The, the relationship between faith and science. But I can say at least this, the Bible just doesn't think about it that way. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's an interesting phrase in verse 3 that the writer says, where he says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed from God's command. Okay, that little verse, or that little word translated understand in Greek can literally be translated to reason from the evidence. It's a life, it's, it's, a, it's an activity of the mind. <laughs> so basically what it's saying is, by faith, we reason from the evidence that the universe was created and formed at God's command. That's not jettisoning one's brain and just sort of being like, well, I know it's absurd. I know it's crazy, all these things that we admit as Christians, but uh, you got to believe it anyway, because that's what it means to have faith. Yeah, no, no, no. I think the philosophers will tell you that scientists themselves are nowhere near as faithless as we might think, and the relationship between those two concepts can be complicated. So false forms of believing, I don't think those are quite the dynamics of believing. So the question then remains, what does it mean to believe? Well, my first suggestion to you this morning is that the act of believing is actually present in everybody. Believing is not just for religious people. Every human being, by virtue of nothing other than being a human, believes. This, I think, is what Jesus is really exasperated at in verse 19 when he calls them a faithless generation. Some of your translations say an unbelieving generation. What Jesus is saying is, is your problem is 
that when you look at the world, you are seeing it through a lens that is unable to account for me. And the truth is, I won't be with you much longer. You've got to begin to see the world through my eyes, which what we find now is the key. Because faith is nothing more than this activity of building one's life around something. Some pursuit, some goal, some aim, some, some reason to get up in the morning. Maybe a relationship, a career, some excitement, some experience. And the thing is, we all do that and are actually doing it right now, right this minute. So the question in the Bible's calculus then is not so much if you believe, but what your faith that you are already exercising is actually in. Faith, by nature, is the activity of looking into something, drawing our life off of that something so I can live my life in the way that I see fit. Look, I've been puzzling over this question for so long that I, I think I've actually now developed my own description for what it looks like when someone comes to faith. Three things, I think, are involved in coming to faith. The first one begins, if you think about it, as a recommendation. Recommendation is number one. Let's imagine that you have a young preteen daughter who, like most of the other girls her age, is bewildered by the pressures of a developing body, her place among her friends, and I'm sure a thousand other worries. But she's immersed in a, a favorite YouTube channel where the host offers a suggestion. He or she says, perhaps the reason why you are as miserable as you are is because you have been misgendered. Perhaps all this business of what it means to be a girl or what it means to be a boy, you know what, that very well could just be an outdated lie that is pushed upon us by the exact same people who oppressed black people 60 years ago or who buried lies in their own midst about sexual abuse or who still find reasons to hate gay people and keep them from being happy with the way God made them. Think about what's happening in that moment, right? The YouTube celebrity is recommending a way of seeing it's a scheme. It's a, it's a framework for understanding my place in the world. And what I want you to see this morning is this is how our identities are built. Someone comes along and mentally constructs a way of seeing for us that helps us see our world, that helps us understand our place in this world through that particular lens. But it begins with someone recommending a way of seeing, recommendation. Number two, then, leads to what I would call consideration. You know, consideration is, is just when we begin to try the worldview on. We mull it over. We try to see ourselves with that framework. And we, we wonder about what kind of problems it might solve for us. We look for reinforcements. You know, other people's opinion who have traveled, traveled similar journeys. What I find really interesting about this consideration phase, though, is just how prominent the imagination is in that process. I don't think we talk enough about the imagination in Christian circles because we mostly think that it means things that are imaginary. That's not the way the Bible thinks of your imagination. <laughs> your imagination is a faculty of your soul that allows you to do things. 
And it's incredibly powerful if you think about it. If you think about it, your imagination has the ability to see things that, are, that actually aren't there. We can actually, you and I, look forward into time itself and we can literally see ourselves with certain outcomes. The Bible actually calls that activity hope, the process of looking forward to see things that aren't there yet. I think this is exactly what Hebrews 11 is describing when it gives really the most direct, clearly stated definition of belief in the entire New Testament. When it says this in the chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 1, now faith is, you're like, oh, here we go. Now we get the explanation. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, look, that's an amazing sentence, by the way, and it's also very weird because you start with that word assurance. Interestingly, that word assurance can be translated the word realization, and I kind of like that better because it suggests an activity of making something real. So faith, he's saying, is that capacity where you can make what you hope in real. But that's totally weird, right? How can we make something real that we're just hoping in? Well, that's exactly what your imagination does. Look, when you got up this morning, you got a vision of yourself. You did. You saw yourself getting dressed. You saw yourself eating breakfast. You saw yourself screaming at your children. You saw yourself apologizing to them on the way to church because after all, we are going to church. You saw yourself making your way to the coffee bar this morning before the service starts. And that image then you set out to live up into. That is you lived into what your imagination saw you doing when you first woke up. That's what humans do. We see ourselves within frameworks of ideas. We try on ways of seeing that will either support what we're doing or maybe even perhaps challenge what we're doing. And our young preteen girl begins to mull over this new way of seeing herself, her imagination fully engaged in picturing for herself a new way of taking in the world around her, which brings me interestingly to the last dynamic, because it begins with a recommendation for sure. It's nurtured in the realm of consideration, but then thirdly and finally, it comes to adoption. You see, adoption is when we begin to cloak ourselves in the symbols of our new belief. We adopt new habits. We take on new vocabulary, the native language of our newfound way of seeing. We begin to follow paths that are laid out to, for us by the gurus of our beliefs. For our young girl, she begins to reject the new clothes that are in the women's section of the store and instead begins to dress herself in clothes that are less constrictive more suitable to her new way of seeing. And of course, if the circumstances warrant, she begins to grow in her newfound faith and maybe perhaps even fantasizes about being totally sold out radically to her new measures that she will take uh, to form her new identity. She'll make a trade-off for new pronouns. She'll conduct a uh, consult with a doctor who, uh, from increasing pressure from medical authorities, will point her in the direction of medications that will change her developing body, perhaps even leading maybe even to reconstructive surgical procedures. Who knows? But the process of adoption is what theologian and sociologist James K.A. Smith calls cultural liturgies. I love that phrase. He says, because we all have these practices, these habits, these customs, 
routines and traditions that will, re, that will reinforce and help us realize our way of looking at the world around us. And they can be anything, by the way. Your family starts on Wednesday in preparation for the grove in the fall. You know, dad is going to cook up something special while mom calls and makes sure that the tent's going to be located in the right spot. The kids actually get a uniform. It's either powder blue or red and probably has the number of their favorite player on it, right? And upon arrival, we greet old friends. We look forward to the crescendo of the day, the big game. My point is, though, there's a liturgy. There's a way that we do it around here that is religiously followed by Old Miss fans. Why? Because it is how we adopt our fandom. It is the outward expression of an inward allegiance to our favorite team. What's my point? Well, I'm not here, by the way, to interact with the trans movement per se this morning. I simply want to observe that we live in a culture which has so deified the inward feelings inside the self that suddenly when someone declares themselves to be something, it just feels inevitable that we have to comply with that declaration. Why? Well, because it emerged from the only fountain of truth in our day, which is the feelings of humans. But I want to offer a different recommendation. Actually, I kind of do it every Sunday if you think about it. A different way of seeing and a different way of asking, is it not simply fair that if Christianity can be scrutinized for the things that, uh, for its internal consistency, for whether it really sort of answers some of the fundamental problems of my life, then perhaps so should the worldviews of others and other recommendations. I'm simply trying to say this morning, is it the activity of framework, recommendation, consideration, adoption? It's going on all the time. It's part and parcel to our humanity. This is what we mean when we say that, that, that human experience is fundamentally and essentially religious. I think that's the reason why you really only get one verse in Hebrews 11.1 1, that sort of it essentializes the definition of believing. It's because it's so subtle. Everyone's doing it. And so what you're going to find is, in finishing this last point, or this second point, is that in the Bible you rarely get people focusing so much on the act of believing as much as on what you're believing is directed at. You've heard me say before that faith in this way is like a windshield, right? A windshield is not intended to work as something to be stared at. It's something to look through. What you see on the other side of the windshield is the point, and that's the preoccupation of the Bible. So the dynamics of believing uh, uh, are such that uh, God defines what those are. But finally and thirdly, the act of believing. doesn't mean that we can't say that there's something true about what it looks like when we're believing, though, right? I'd offer two points in conclusion on this one. The first one is, you know you're believing when you get humble. That's got to be the first definition here. Again, this whole story takes place that we just read in the context of the disciples' buffoonery. They are always missing the point. Why couldn't we cast it out, Lord, they ask in verse 28. And Jesus says, this one only comes out by prayer. In other words, what he's saying is there are some things that are only possible if God does them. Prayer is not just a new hoop for you to jump through. It's the thing that, that only God can do. Jesus, of course, commends the man's confession. I believe, help my unbelief. And we somehow think those two things are in contradiction. The more I read that passage, I kind of think they're saying the same thing. <laughs> 
in a weird way? Because he's saying, I think I get it. I'm not sure. But if you can, I think you can help. What is he saying? He's saying, look, I see you. I can look through this windshield and it's okay. But it's kind of a cloudy windshield and there's times in which I doubt and I got all these questions. But I don't know. If I'm looking at something that's really helpful, maybe you could heal my daughter or my child. <laughs> to which Jesus looks and is kind of incredulous. And he goes, if I can, do you have any idea who you are talking to? Of course you don't. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that to some degree, believing has to be a gift. Believing is a gift. This way of seeing is something. Because believing is an act of looking away from oneself to something else. You know you're missing it if you're more preoccupied with the quality or the quantity of your faith rather than the object of your faith. That's why Jesus keeps calling faith that it has to be like a mustard seed, tiny thing. It could just be tiny if it's connected to the right thing. Me. Secondly, though, I think you'll know you're believing if you begin to talk less about your belief and more about what you believe in. That's exactly what I was just saying. It gives me a chance to tell the fun illustration of the two men that are running through the woods away from a bear for their lives. They walk up to a particular river and they're going to try to cross the river to get away from the bear. The one man has been to these woods a thousand times. He knows what time of the year it is. He knows that thing is frozen. He knows exactly how much ice is out there. Scurries across it safe on the other side. The other man's never been to these woods. He's never been there. He has no idea. He thinks maybe the guy that ran before him might have put a crack in it. I don't know. But my real choice right now is between getting mauled by the bear and actually trying to take my risk on the ice. So I'll take my risk on the ice and he scurries across and gets away. Do you recognize in that story that their salvation had nothing to do with the quality or the quantity of their faith. It was everything about the essential nature of the ice. It was the ice. It was what they put their faith in, not in how well or how poorly they grappled with it. Look, y'all, this summer, you know, week after week, we're going to look at one fundamental foundational Christian belief. And the reason why we're doing that is in the hopes to build our faith. Because we're all looking to something. And the hope is that week in and week out, we can stand in wonderment at the things that God has put in front of his people to rest their lives upon, to build their lives upon. So then in the end, we can see salvation coming through it. And that is the reason why believing matters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you lead us into this place of believing as we come to your table, needing, Father, very much to see vividly your life and your truth and your joy. And Father, as we taste and see that these elements are good, we pray that they would scream at us about how indeed you are good as well. Would you do that for us? Because we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.